Hey guys, welcome to VS Energy's Commissioning Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Nick Taliska. In today's podcast, we will be discussing writing the OPR. So if you guys have been listening to our prior episodes, we did touch a bit on the OPR and our general thoughts about it and what's why it's important and what's you know what you need to include in it. But this episode is dedicated specifically to the OPR. So let's get started. The OPR, the acronym for the Owner's Project Requirement, in the commissioning process is supposed to be the beginning of the building commissioning. And it, the OPR is actually, we'll talk about the process in a few minutes, but the OPR defines what the project should look like, what the building should look like, how it should perform, and captures the expectations of the owner stakeholders in the construction and performance of the building. Now that said, I cannot enumerate how many projects we have gotten involved in when there is a a strata of owners who believe commissioning occurs in the last 3% of the project construction. So we get a telephone call, a request for proposal, or whatever to open quote, commission, close quote, a project. And the building has been designed, built, started up, and now they would like to have it commissioned. And our initial response is usually, please provide the building drawings, the OPR document, and the BOD document. And Sometimes we might get building drawings, but no OPR, no BOD. And sometimes we get the question, what's an OPR? So today we'll backtrack and discuss why the OPR is important, how it's constructed, how it's put together, and why it's uh, useful during the commissioning process for both the owner, the con- or, or actually all, the owner, the contractor, and the commissioning agent. Yeah, when you say BOD, you're talking about the basis, basis of, of design. Deliverable. Yes. Okay, and, and for and just like commissioning, which you can do for new construction and retrofit, there the OPR is a requirement for any type of project installation. Meaning, it doesn't just apply to retrofit situations or new construction. Good point. Thank you. So I got a question for you guys and just to, to maybe set the stage and it, it could be, maybe it's a hard question to answer, but I'm a, a visual type of guy, right? So when we talk about the OPR and it obviously it depends on the scope of the project and the magnitude of the project, how, how long is a, is a general OPR? Is it a one page, two page, five page, 10 page kind of document? And it will cover all the aspects that are required in the OPR, but just to get like a magnitude idea of an OPR, you know, what, what is, how big is it? Just roughly the shortest one I've ever seen is about a page and a half and the longest, probably 15 pages. Okay. The 15 page was for a laboratory facility. There were, and it was very well written. We, we did not actually, we were not engaged during the construction of the OPR, but the building owners uh, were very familiar with the process and engaged, had used it before internally and did a very good job 
capturing the requirements for the facility from the envelope all the way down to individual laboratory pressurization control, et cetera. So that was about 15 pages, but it was still a very concise document that contained enough detail to provide some guidance all the way through the project. Yeah, I could imagine a, a short OPR. I don't want to say is useless, but you really you we want to do a good job of capturing what all of the ex- expectations and requirements are of the project and it. You can't just write a one pager and say this is good enough. It's, it's got to have enough detail in it so everybody has a full understanding of the expectations of the project. Well, I guess that would depend on on the scope and the magnitude of the project, obviously. But Mark, I guess a question to you on those cases where an owner calls you, you know, after the fact and says, we'd like you to commission it and you ask for their OPR and they say we have none, but we have not only design drawings, but we have as-built drawings and sequences of operation. Isn't that good enough? What would be your response to that? Well, I have, I have a couple of responses to that. Number one, you will get what you'll get at this point. But the second thing that happens is the, there is inevitably a conflict between what the owner is getting, or there may be, I shouldn't say there's inevitably, there may be a conflict and there often is a conflict between what the owner gets and what the design and construction teams built. Well, in that case, who arbitrates that? And in some cases, it's been us where we need to sit down with the owner and say, if this wasn't communicated and it doesn't appear that it was, then you will not be getting this function with the system as it's installed. Well, that creates a little bit of heartburn on both ends, the design team, the construction team, the engineering, uh, the owner's team. So the OPR is there basically, if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. So to capture all of the requirements and the needs of the owner to be able to carry through the construction process. Now, that's not to say you can't commission a building without an OPR but it, it oftentimes does come down to an arbitration between here's what you really would like, but here's what the best we can do based on the construction of the building in its current state. How many times though, or how often do you, have you seen in your experience, you've had to go to the OPR rather than the design documents to say, this is, you need to do this because here it is. Isn't generally what, the OPR would contain part of the spec sequences, design documents. The, the OPR in general does not get to that level. Right. It would be, okay, I need to have a building with a exterior that has extremely, extremely low maintenance because, you know, we are either in a location where maintenance on the outside of the building is, is difficult or it's a high rise, we want to have low E glass. We want to, you know, have this many BTUs per square foot per year. Generally not at the sequence level, but at the same time, if, uh, you know, there's a requirement for 
74 degrees and 40 percent or 70 degrees and 40 percent relative humidity 24 7 and it's uh winter time and there's no humidification built into the system well you can go to the opr and say okay this is the requirement and it's in uh, minnesota and you better have humidification designed in and if you don't then there's a flaw in the design because you'll never maintain the indoor relative humidity conditions without humidification yeah that that's a perfect example i was going to go towards something like that and you covered it perfectly. That's that's why the OPR is valuable. It prevents at the end of the day when we go through the system, facility, whatever, and it doesn't do what the owner expected. This is, you know, there's where that it mitigates that disconnect, I suppose, by writing a quality, thorough OPR. And early on too, Clayton, I think that the OPR does serve as a checkpoint along the way. If you if you have it developed at the onset of the project, the conception, then as you face challenges, as you go through different cost factors, different design factors, constructability issues, if you kind of have this foundation that you're going back to in a way which the OPR have always been taught was kind of a, you know, in layman's terms, what the big you know, goals of the project or what, what the requirements were. It, it can be technical to some right. degree, but it's going to help us to kind of go back and say, well, let's remember what we're trying to achieve here. Here's what's really important to us. Not that other things aren't important, but these are the primary concerns and what we're trying to achieve with the project. Mark, I guess if, if you would walk me through some of the steps, say, you know, a, a facility calls you and says, we want we're interested in doing this project. We want you as the commissioning agent. I don't know if it works like that, you know, but say, say that happened and you say, okay, let's get started. We start with the OPR. How do you, how do you start that process? Well, the, the two primary entities that publish guidelines for, or the most of the guidelines that are published for commissioning uh, recommend using what's called a nominal group technique, which basically get all the participants in one room, a whiteboard, two or three tables that might contain working groups that, that there's operations, there's finance, production, etc., and begin with the open-ended questions of what are the overarching goals for the facility, overarching goals slash requirements how many square feet, what kind of indoor conditions, what kind of energy performance, et cetera. And, without, and it's really important that the commissioning authority remains impartial. Now, if, if asked, you can provide input, but it, it my, one of my challenges personally when I've, I've uh, facilitated these is basically not to provide technical input early on because this this should be the sky's the limit within your budget process what is everything you would like to have this building do security uh, energy performance remote access basically all of the all of the functionality of the building needs to be captured in the OPR so when you ask those open-ended questions the groups come up with their lists of wants, 
needs, expectations, and those go on the whiteboard. And then you circulate the rough findings back through the groups. Okay, we want, we want to be efficient. We would like to use renewables. Do you have a percentage? Do you have a, what you want your operating budget to look like? Do you have, they want low maintenance. Well, do you want no maintenance or low maintenance or do you plan to outsource your maintenance of the entire facility? And it should, it should go all the way down to finishes of the interior of the building. Do we want carpeting? Do we want smooth surfaces? Do we want zero maintenance, et cetera? So that by the time you're done, you have a pretty good picture both mentally and visually of what that building looks like. And as I said, some of some of the OPRs, 10 pages is probably not a bad number, but I always like to, you know, just the same as you're going through the building. When I look at the front of the building, what do I see? I see a low maintenance facility with, you know, minimal glass. Do I need to have specific landscaping? And then as I walk in the front door, do I see, you know, utilitarian or are we at the other end of the spectrum where, it's a it's a high impact entrance where you have artwork, you have et cetera, you know, a lot of things or an image that you're trying to create uh, as a visitor comes through the building, and then you work all the way down to what's behind the the walls in the plumbing, the electrical, the mechanical systems to be able to provide a working environment for whatever is happening within the building. So, and that's a great explanation. And I guess my next question for you is say you're as a commissioning authority, are you, you're going into that level of detail for your OPR or is this, would that be like an OPR for the, the entirety of the project? It's the entirety of the project that, you write an OPR, the OPR covers everything from what the parking lot and the and the landscaping looks like all the way to how we expect the building to maintain indoor conditions and how we keep the building secure and how difficult it is to maintain and clean. And just to clarify something here, Mark, I mean, when you're, you're painting this picture, it's a very comprehensive type of project. And I'm thinking more about uh, new construction when you're talking about the parking lot and interior finishes. From my experience with mostly retrofit type work, you know, I agree completely with the, the workshop idea and you have to get your nominal groups and get interest. But a lot of times the questions are very different that may be asked because the company, the ESCO may be coming in saying, hey, we, we have this great contract, the vehicle that's available to you to do a lot of these capital improvement projects you haven't been able to do. And we're going to fund those improvements through achieved cost savings every year. The questions can be a little bit different. You know, you know, I once heard there's four types of problems in the world. You want something you don't have. You have something you don't want. You want to keep something that you have, but you're about to lose it, or you're about to get something that you don't want. And sometimes even just in those informal 
conversations with a building owner when we're talking about an energy savings performance contract, which may involve all the all these dimensions of a building you're talking about, with the exception of maybe the parking lots or landscaping. But a lot of times it's, oh yeah, our chiller system is really old, you know, we'd like a new one. Or and a lot of times all the these problems can be framed in in sometimes all of these uh these ways, you know. You have a old chiller and you don't want it. You want something new. You're what you what you have is a reliable cooling system that you manage to satisfy the load, but what you're worried about is the next hot spell, you know, things are going to crash and you're going to be in a, a world of trouble. But the idea is to just suss out a lot of the, the requirements of, of the, of the owner of the project is really what it comes down to, which can be simple and, or they can be very complicated. You're exactly right. And I, I, I probably should have prefaced what I said with that in a, in a retrofit, it's uh, it's really no different than you know building a whole building. You still need to define, even within a narrow scope, exactly what the requirements are for the owner. And in cases where we've supported litigation resulting from performance contracts, no OPR, none. There was a document that might have been a scope document that during the course of the construction or even before was renegotiated, but not codified or memorialized and absent those changes either, which could have been, could have occurred in a OPR document. It could have occurred in a memo, but it definitely should not occur with a handshake where there's a deviation from a scope or an intent. It just, uh, they got, they got to the end of the project and it didn't meet the, the owner's project requirements, which unfortunately remained in the minds of the owners because they had never been captured in writing, circulated for agreement and used as the basis for the project. Or also they're used, uh, they're developed at one point, the OPR, but then discarded as you go through successive phases as if the, you know the, this was required to get us to the next step and then we're going to forget about the OPR and what we all, like you said, formalized. Right. So when you write an OPR, how is it written? Is it like the, the, um, you don't write it, say you, obviously I assume you don't write it saying the owner wants this, this, and this, you write it as a, the facility shall do this, this, and this and have. So I think you're trying to maybe draw a distinction. Is it written as a specification? It definitely is not. Okay. It, it's a, it's a memorandum of understanding kind of format where the owner's project requirements for this pro and actually the OPR I've seen it used as a, as a appendix or attachment to request for proposals for engineering mm -hmm. request for proposals for construction manager at risk. So it, it is basically a statement of intent that we intend the building should provide these features functions for this amount of time with construction to occur in this kind of schedule, et cetera. So it's not the building shell. It's mm -hmm. we expect these functions and features and codification or memorialization of those, of those items. 
And I like the thought of having that as an uh, in, in appendix or in front of all that supporting documentation or, you know, for an RFP or what have you, because it does, it should make it pretty clear, obviously what the expectations are if you write it properly, which is the whole point of this. So are there like, you know, writing an OPR, are there, are there different types of sections? Like where do you start and where do you finish? If, if that's a clear enough question. It basically follows the AIA format of a specification where you have a general section. Okay. Here's what the building is. Then you have the exterior of the building, the uh, interior of the building, electrical, plumbing, mechanical controls. I mean, that's the way I do it only because mm -hmm. that's what I've always been comfortable with is the, the AIA spec formats. But I looked at a owner's project requirement document for a town in Connecticut not too long ago, and it was written by a committee and it didn't follow any particular format, but really captured their thoughts, probably not in a really well organized manner, but it was complete. So as long as it's complete, it, it, it really doesn't matter as right. long as there's no large omissions that would change the way the building looked, worked, or the cost side. Yeah, because that's where the difference is between you being, you know, an engineering minded individual, the structure of the way you think and operate compared to a committee of people that know what they want, but their, their professional backgrounds are just not necessarily engineering. And I, I can imagine that's where you see the deviance. Well, I would think you do need to, to have the OPR speak to a, a wide audience. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, you know, they're basically, you know, a lot of the same content will be in each type of OPR as far as, you know, we see project goals and obviously that's a very nebulous term, but you know, cost considerations, the thing I, you know, I don't see in, in my work necessarily, documents titled OPR in anything I receive, but there are some carryovers from that. And in the federal world, I think uh, the OPR is commonly called like the project intent document or something like that. But what I'm primarily interested in the OPR and uh, which is a big part of it is the, the success criteria. You know, how, how do we know that this project was a measurable success and some things are not easily measured, but other things are. When you're talking about energy savings, those things can really, you can put some thought to that to define how will we know this was a success. That, yeah, that makes sense. And I agree. And, and then for Nick or Mark, I got another question. I don't think we necessarily covered it. We, we did talk about when you come into a project when there's not an OPR and you know problems that that can cause. But at what point can you can you come into if you get brought into a project a little late where you can step back and say whatever we have, you know, if, if it's design drawings or a spec written or what have you, can we take that and write an OPR to have it to then follow through with? And so Mark could probably address this pretty detailed. Sorry, Mark, but yeah, I mean you're you're talking there about kind of reverse engineering the process and getting back even to a, 
a basis of design right which should be you know fairly easy to come by or, or to reconstruct i say right. easy uh, and then ultimately tracing that back to an opr and and you're right both of you are right that in the cases where there's no opr and maybe you're part way through design and uh, you're 50 percent design for instance and we've been brought into projects at that kind of level the opr is non-existent so my my typical mode of operation is to have a sit down with the owners and go through a quick list of questions so I can get a clearer understanding of what their expectations are and do some comparison to the design in its current state and then be able to unfortunately you have to you have to push a little bit you have to twist a little bit but let the owners know let the engineers know there's a disconnect and we need to get everybody on the same page so you're basically at that point arbitrating an opr to say okay here's what you have here's what you have money for here's what we can do versus what your expectation is because right now there's a disconnect between where we're headed and where you want to be and that that's basically and and if there is a disconnect and the further you get down the process the worse it is because it's easy to change things not easy but it's possible to change things when they're only on paper but once they're constructed it's really difficult to change things yeah i think we talked about it before even even just contracted at that point i mean once right yeah it's really hard to step back past the design phase and you brought up a point that I want to ask where, when does the budget come into play with the OPR? They, they typically the owner will, will already have a budget of some number that was provided them by an architect or, or an engineering firm that is this many dollars per square feet or this much, or it's, you know, they have in-house engineering or anything like that. If not, they may just say, you know, we need to get a budget together and, that's okay too. Funds are never, ever, ever unlimited though. So it's, yeah. it's always better just to ask what's the budget. So is it your job to arbitrate that? Say they say we have a budget of, I don't know, well, just simple numbers, a million dollars. And they say, we want this, this, and this. Your Is it your job to say, well, that can't happen with your budget when you're going uh, through the I, OPR? I would say if it's obvious, uh, yes. If, if it's something that they clearly want, but they is clearly not in the budget. Yes. Okay. And I don't know how often that happens. If, if people put together a budget, they probably base that off of what they think they want anyways. But I suppose some, some facilities could say, yeah, hey, we got, we got a million bucks to spend. What let's try to get the most out of it. Let's just, you know, we need this, this, and this, we want this, this, and this, what, where, where will that get us? Yeah. I, I agree with you. Most entities have done some level of construction and have a, you know, general idea in their mind, right? Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, perfect. So once you write the OPR and we've done our interviews with, with the stakeholders, which could be owners, you know, it depends on the facility. Like we talked about in our other episode, it could be, owners it could be tenants right 
what who who else are the stakeholders or could be the stakeholders owners tenants so it, at the owner level or maybe it's a their contractors it would be maintenance operations finance all of those entities from the owner and then maybe you don't you have tenants or you don't have tenants right and you, you don't always get a lot of uh, occupants, but you should have at least some representation from the people that work in the building. Sometimes, you know, depending on whether it's a public facility or not, I've been to meetings where they, there are uh, representatives of the voting population or a chairman of the local governance so that they know how the money's being spent. We've been, I've been at uh, OPR generation meeting where they had a reporter. Really? Oh yeah. Wow. Okay. So we, and that's for the listeners. So they, if they didn't know that's who could be part of an OPR uh, committee or whatever you'd want to call it. And we talked about what is part of the OPR and then it's essentially your, your job as the commissioning agent or, you know, the individual writing the OPR to take all that, boil it down. I assume there's a couple iterations. Yeah. I would not say it's, it's my job to boil it down. When you go through the nominal group technique, it's basically facilitating the group boiling it down. So, you know, you, you start with, okay, here's what you want the building to be and do And over the, the course of the day that gets refined further and further when there's lack of clarity, ask for more clarification or specificity so that you can, it's, it would never be my document. It would be the project document, the team document so that everyone's in agreement when the, when the final documents published, this is what we all agreed the building needs to represent. And it can be a difficult role to, uh, to play. I imagine with a lot of owners, right. That you, you're, you're trying, like you touched upon earlier, Mark, you know, you, you're not really there to, I don't necessarily offer your direction on how you think things should go, but it does take a, uh, a different set of skills than you might normally use in a commissioning engagement to facilitate especially different groups with everybody has different interests and a different history as well. Absolutely. You guys know me. Typically I'm pretty outspoken and direct. The role of the facilitator in the nominal group technique is to be neither outspoken nor direct. But still offer your, your professional insights, I would think, or you could be spending a lot of time on this, this part of the process. You know, you, there has to be a guiding hand in a way to, I guess, help refine some of the ideas and find commonalities or find areas where, you know, two goals are, you know, mutually exclusive or competing at best. Yeah. Or like a, a, a voice of reason per se. Yes, that's, that is true. So once this OPR then is generated, and obviously there's probably a lot of, it could be a lot of challenges to, to get to the completed document with 
all the stakeholders and people's different viewpoints, different wants, different needs. Once we boil it all down, and I think, again, we covered this a bit in our previous episode, that's when you'd start to generate off of that a basis of design document? No. No? OPR is basically the document that gets turned over to the engineering or architectural engineering and design team. And they start down the um, design road. The basis of design is basically a document that accompanies the drawings that says, here's why the thought process between uh, behind the development of the drawings that says, this is why we use this type of facade. This is why we use this type of window roof, the mechanical system description, why specific configurations were selected. So it's the, it's the verbal discussion of uh, discussion slash justification for the, the components systems and construction type of the building. Okay. And you could even get into manufacturers too, Mark. And, and I sure. think, you know, types yeah. of tiller specified. Why did we choose a screw machine over others? Or why do we want to go with a York chiller? You know, and right. there may be a legitimate reason why and it fits in with their master plan and continued operations. So, so that information is in the basis of design, but what, what would be in the OPR then? We want new chillers or we want New York chillers or we want screw chillers. How involved we, is that? We would like to, so in the basis of design, it'll tell you more about the equipment. But in the OPR, you know, we wish to upgrade the chill water plant to a more efficient machine with a mechanical life cycle of 20 years or 15 years to produce chilled water with redundancy, you know, of N plus one as part of this project. Right. Okay. That's I just, again, so people can have an understanding if they don't, what, what a typical OPR would be written like and sounds like and what's involved in it. Right. And then the ESCO would go ahead and, uh, you know, their engineering team goes ahead, provides the design. Okay. We have the objective of 15 year life cycle. We want N plus one redundancy. We want higher efficiency. So at some point the cost of the chiller gets to the point where it no longer produces a payback within the time requirements the ESCO has. So they pick a reasonable, you know, high performing chiller that will give the life cycle requirement of the OPR plus redundancy and go forward. And the BOD would speak to that. So I, I apologize if you kind of already touched on this. Did, do you, do you put any verbiage in regarding payback periods in the OPR? Well, if it's for a, for a, uh, ESCO project that basically the payback is what the ESCO has signed on for and the, they're, they're responsible to pick the machines that provide the, the payback that fit within the, the contract construction. But for other projects, uh, the, the owner could certainly specify the economics of the project and, you know, they could have right. and say, we don't want anything more. We have a certain amount of capital and it, it, there's a range to it. 
but we're not going to invest in anything that has more than a four-year payback or a five-year, who knows? Correct. Okay. And that would be part of the OPR, that kind of level of, I don't know what you want to call it, that, that level of detail would be in the OPR? Could be? Could be. Yeah. All righty. So moving forward, now that our OPR, we, we'll, we covered a lot of aspects of it and we say we have our OPR generated and it could be, you know, between a page and a half, 15 pages, depending on the project and the level of detail. As we move throughout the project with that, it can change, right? Or it can... Yeah, absolutely can change. It can change based on pressures from the budget, pressures from the schedule. Hey, I'd like to have a, a McQuay magnetically levitated chiller but that has a delivery lead time of 26 weeks on it we need to get the project done you know during the summer it's a school project well okay that is going to change you know there's there's competing you know cost and budget objectives the owner may decide well we have other issues that we need to push funds toward, especially in the retrofit. I mean, that OPR, it's not the contractor's document, it's the owner's document. So, hey, people are allowed to change their mind. It, it is unfortunate, you know, if it's not well justified, and we've, Clayton, we've been on projects where the owner changed their mind weekly. So you wonder why I was forever taking notes and sending memos, well, it's because right. document those changes. But yeah, it absolutely can change. And depending on how far you are throughout the project, obviously there has to be some kind of engagement and agreement by, it would be what we'll say the A&E, the contractor, the commissioning agent. I mean, as much as you want to say the owner can, right? You, you say uh, he who has the gold makes the rules. That's a golden rule. Yeah. Um, as much as that is true, I suppose at some point you you go down a road that you can't step back from too, right? So you, you can't just completely change the OPR. It's got to be within reason. Boy, I don't know. Uh, I mean, from my perspective. I don't know about that. <laughs> really? I don't know. I'm, I'm glad I asked the question. I mean, like I said, you guys have a lot of experience in it. So what do you see? I'll give you, uh, for instance, and Nick was actually involved. He helped get this thing off the ground. We were up at a project in Connecticut at a military base, and they wanted, you know, the whole thing was just provide us projects that will deliver this much in utility reduction, BTUs, the gross BTUs. They didn't even quantify electric, thermal, didn't matter. And has a payback of X. So we put together this project and the whole thing, you know, had all kinds of chiller replacements, demand control ventilation, replacement of retrofit of fluorescent lights and incandescent lights to LED, etc. And basically wrote the whole proposal. They accepted the proposal and then out of nowhere, one of the engineers on the site said, well, you can't install LED tube retrofits in this facility because it's not uh, allowed in, you know, these kinds of facilities. It went all the way up to, you know, 
the highest levels and we couldn't get a definitive answer. So the project manager said, okay, we're going to take the funds. And it was many millions of dollars that were allocated to retrofit these lights. And we need you to go out and find deferred maintenance projects that need to be repaired and we'll also generate savings as an alternative. So we'd already been awarded a contract now. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, this is what, this is not your fault. This is our fault. And the schedule remains the same. Go out and find as many of these projects as you can. And we did. So it, it turned into an entirely different project. It would have been 50% lighting and instead became 0% lighting and a whole raft of other deferred maintenance projects, bad steam traps, you know, leaking coils, redundant equipment that had failed that basically they never upgraded, never replaced. So they were running without redundancy to critical systems. And, and that's how easy it can happen because, you know, if the owners got the money, they make the rules. Yeah. (laughs) And that's a great example, Mark, of something changing, you know, pretty close to when construction was going to begin. Right. Right. And there are cases, and I think maybe it's important to remember, you know, technically it's the owner's project from the time before it's even a project and you're just talking to after it's built, it's still their project. And maybe my perspective with working with the federal government is that things are always changing there. And, and, and like you guys addressed, you know, external influences, changes in mission, all kinds of factors can come in. And, you know, I've seen wind turbines that were shut down after they were installed because they were too costly to maintain. You know, and this is some off-continent work, but, and it just wasn't worth it to them to maintain these things because they were just problematic. And so that kind of changed their project requirements. At one point, that was a necessity for their project. Other times, utilities and deferred loads with cogens and combined heat and powers can dramatically affect, uh, well, what they're reasonably looking for out of the system that they just installed. So sometimes it's, you know, at their own discretion. And with the customer, it's usually always at their discretion, but it could be based on a, a bunch of different factors that were just constantly changing. You know, flexibility is definitely uh, a key word in a lot of these operations. It is incumbent and uh, requisite for us as commissioning authorities to document those changes. I mean, the, the worst thing that can happen in a project is you get all done and you go to shake the owner's hand and it's somebody you've never met before who just replaced the person that you've been working with for two years or three years. And they say, so what do you build here? What'd you build here? Why'd you do that? Well, that's the time when you better have your portfolio of documentation to be able to say, here's where we started. And these changes were made, you know, during design, these changes were made during construction. Here's why we built what we built. And and it goes that way sometimes. And I think that is such a valuable point. And when those circumstances happen, because you get a change of people and it can be very easy for, I think it's human nature. So I wasn't a part of that decision. So it's very easy for me to be critical. But if you do have that kind of backup the documentation saying, yes, this is how we got here. That does 
add a little bit, I think, to most reasonable people to say, okay, some thought was put into this, obviously. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and pick it apart my first week here. But there is that tendency. And I think when we were going a couple of minutes ago, tracing back, you know, the times when you don't have an OPR, how do you get back to that point? And kind of thinking through that roadmap in reverse, in my mind, almost highlights why it's so important to do it at the beginning. That's because right. it does serve as a checkpoint along the way. We've talked about how it, it, it can be a fluid document, not always, but it can be. And it's almost a, a checkpoint along the way against every other step that's going on. You know, the, the OPR gets checked against submittals. It gets checked against Those functional testing, et cetera. Those are just great points. So Absolutely. Very From both of you guys, I think that covers a lot of stuff that a lot of people may not think about I guess what it looks why like it is important and why you should do it at the beginning and how it can change and why it should be able to change with throughout the project. So as we're just moving through, I think we're getting to the end of our time and kind of chronologically going from the beginning of the project, we're, we're pretty near the end towards the end of a project in our conversation. So I think I'll end this episode with asking you guys, as you complete a project, right? You go through the, the design phase, you have your OPR, you go through the, or the pre-design, the design, the construction phase, you, you have your OPR and you're still following through that. Once you get to the end of the project completion, is that again, another point where you say, okay, let, we have our OPR, let us reflect on the project. What was actually done? You, you, kind of do a quick cross-reference to the OPR to say everything's good before you say this project's completed and let's move on? I think uh, in general, the OPR document, is, it should be forefront in your mind, at your desk. It should never, once it's constructed, it should never leave you know the top three documents in your in-basket because if you lose sight of it, that's when the project can take a turn that may be unrecoverable. So you can reflect on it, but it should be at that point just a check to say, yep, we hit all the we hit all the points and the ones that we didn't, we have documentation to support as to why that didn't happen. If you're if you're getting questions that why didn't we do this and it's on the OPR, then you've failed in one way or another, either somebody didn't catch it during design or construction, or you didn't document the reason for the change. I like that, Mark, that the OPR is a, uh, a front of the binder type of document. That's right. Yeah. Well, and I, I have to imagine uh, more often than not, it, it isn't in some projects, right? I can imagine people write it and then papers get stacked on top and paper. And then, and then at the end of the project, you're like, where, where, you know, if we're talking about it as a hard piece of paper, where the hell did this go? You're shuffling, rifling through file cabinets, whatever. And it should be on top at all times. True. And some aspects do carry through in our work, you know, the measurable performance criteria, that's a big part that, you know, carries on long after the project has been commissioned and accepted. And then we go into the performance phase and if the OPR, again, I, I don't see often a lot of uh, formal OPRs or even some of the project goals carried through to, to my part of the projects, but definitely the measurements of success and how do we know it when we see it. 
that definitely carries through and there needs to be that still needs to be traced back to the to the beginning because saying things like you know we will verify children performance is you know at least you know whatever 0.6 kw per ton well there's a lot of additional questions to ask there well how are we going to do that right uh, a good opr will, will lead you down that road into just continually asking questions especially when it comes down to you know how do we how do we know it when we see it sometimes it's not too evident but the opr would be critical uh, foundational document there well put completely I don't know if you guys have anything else to add on this. I think we covered the OPR pretty well uh, throughout our time here, starting from the beginning, who needs to be involved, what it looks like, how it's written, the verbiage of it, and how it should be followed through for the entirety of the project. Like I said, you guys have any points to finish out with? No, I think these are, you know, how do I want to say it? The OPR documentation is not the highly visible part of the commissioning authorities job but it is an essential part of the job and most often overlooked and we see it all the time folks that ostensibly want to be our competitors and market themselves as commissioning agents commissioning authorities and don't facilitate or participate in development of an opr i think they're selling themselves short uh, and selling the owner short because that OPR document, as Nick said, that's the guidepost, the series of guideposts that you refer to during the construction of the project. And if you miss one, you skip one, or you didn't do it, you're somehow off track and have the opportunity to correct before you get to the finish line. And oh, by the way, we forgot to do two of the nine items that are on the OPR. Well put. I think we'll end with that, guys. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. Our next episode, we will be discussing the design phase responsibility of the commissioning agent, the owner, and the A&E. So breaking this into a lot of sections regarding commissioning in the process. Hope you guys have been liking the podcast. If you want some more information on our companies, VS Energy or Applied Facility Science, check out our websites, www.vsenergy.us or www.appliedfacilityscience.com. Thanks a lot.